Good morning. Good morning to those who are here in person, and good morning to those who are online. My name is Kent, if you don't know me. I'm the student pastor here at Cross Point Community Church, and uh, I'm truly glad that you have chosen to worship here with us this morning. In our text today of Luke chapter 20, we see the Jewish leader, religious leaders show almost the complete opposite attitude that the students' testimonies that I just read. The Jewish leaders made their life about themselves instead of truly um, submitting to God's authority. As we continue our study of uh, the book of Luke, and we're in Luke 20, specifically verse 9, um, we continue to see uh, this principle, this truth, that the Jewish religious leaders are not submitting to Jesus' authority. In this specific passage, we see a parable um, of a vineyard owner that illustrates this. If you listened to Dave's sermon from last week, or if you were here, um, you heard about these religious leaders challenging the authority of Jesus because they didn't believe at the core that he is God's son. This morning, we're going to study this parable that speaks to this unwillingness to, to submit to God's authority. And if we pay close attention, I believe that we will be reminded of some gospel truths this morning that we can apply to our own lives. So, if you have your Bibles with you, please meet me in Luke 20, verse 9, if you have not already turned there. Luke 20, verse 9. Now, before I start reading, I want to point out a couple things that's going to help us make sense of this parable that we are, are reading. First, we speak, uh, we're going to read of a vineyard owner. This vineyard owner represents God the Father. Then we're going to read about a vineyard, represents Israel. The tenant farmers in our story represent the Jewish leaders over time. And then the first three servants represent different Old Testament prophets. And then finally, the son of the vineyard owner represents God, the son, Jesus Christ. So with all that in mind, let's go ahead and read our scripture for this morning. I'll be reading from the CSB translation, starting in verse 9. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest, he sent a servant to the farmer so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then? Will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He at, he, Jesus is asking them. He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they, the religious leaders, heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whom, whoever it falls, it will shatter him. And the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew that he had told this parable 
against them, but they feared the people. They feared the people. At first glance of this story, it may leave you flummoxed or in a, a state of shock. Based on external actions, you might be thinking, how can the tenant farmers act in this way? How can they be so hateful? How can they be so self-focused? I think if we look at a deeper level, it might surprise us what we find. As we peel back the layers of this story and as we get to the heart of the Pharisees, I think it will surprise us because at the heart of a matter is a matter of the heart. So let's look at our story again and see if we see something about the heart of the tenant farmers. So as we, as we look through Luke 20, as we get to verse 14, we see a glimpse into their motive for their actions. Verse 14 says, But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir, let's kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. Did you catch it? Did you see where it gives you a glimpse of the heart. It's that last line, so that the inheritance will be ours. You see, the tenant farmers have committed the sin of idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting, serving, or giving worship to something that is not God. I want you to repeat this with me, as it should be on the board. Idolatry is trusting serving, or giving worship to something that is not God. These tenant farmers had an idolatrous desire for money. Their heart was focused on building their own wealth so much so that they were willing to kill for it. Now, when we talk about wealth, we need to remind ourselves, we need to remember that wealth or money itself is not inherently sinful. It is how you view it. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Key word is loving money, especially in ways that makes you disregard the needs of others in the church, in the community, and not realizing that everything you have has happened under God's sovereign control. In this parable, we see that wealth is indeed viewed in a sinful, idolatrous way. The tenant farmers refuse to see that they are hired help. They don't own the vineyard. And plus, they didn't even plant it. The owner did. Their job was to care for it and to harvest it. But along the way, they saw the wealth in the harvest, they saw that it was desirable and didn't want to share any of it. They disregarded the well-being of the servants that the owner sent as they beat them up. And when the opportunity came to take the vineyard for themselves, they killed the very son of the vineyard owner. Now this parable lines up with what the Jewish religious uh, leaders have been doing to the nation of Israel. Since the Old Testament times, God was the one who formed the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham and continuing with Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, and then spending the 400 years in Egypt and in slavery building the nation of Israel. 
And after that, we see along the way, the Jewish leaders saw how the nation of Israel could benefit themselves and make them wealthy. The prophet Ezekiel has this judgment against the Jewish religious leaders of his time. Ezekiel 34, 1-6 says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fat animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the the injured, brought back the strays or sought the lost, and said you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My my flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. This continues to the New Testament with these Jewish religious leaders. They continue to abuse their position for wealth and power. We see this in John eleven forty seven through 48. So the chief priests and Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man, Jesus, is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come take away both our place and our nation. Hopefully you see at the heart of both of these texts, you, you see that these Jewish religious leaders, at the heart, they have an idol- idolatrous desire for wealth and power instead of serving God and serving others. Now, now the outward actions of the, the Jewish re- religious leaders make it obvious that they have this idolatrous desire in their lives. But getting to that point doesn't just happen overnight. Idolatry can slowly creep into our lives without us even noticing it. I currently have the privilege to be part of a a great uh, men's small group that meets here on Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. if anyone is interested. We're we're reading the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And in this book, it gives an example of, of a subtle temptation of idolatry. For context purposes, this book is set uh, during the time of World War II in England. And in one of the letters from the senior demon, Screwtape, uh, he writes to his nephew, demon Wormwood, um, into tempting his patient, or the human that he is tempting, into either a pacifist or a patriot during the war. An excerpt from this letter reads as this. Whichever he adopts. Your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of the partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. What C.S. Lewis is, saying, is, is not saying here is that it's uh, bad to have current opinions on uh, current day issues, but rather he is writing to be careful that our opinions on current day issues don't elevate higher than the gospel. We have to be careful that it doesn't become an idol. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we give 
our attention, our energy, our money toward anything more than we give our attention, our energy, our money toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, at that point, we have lost sight of the beauty, the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have traded it for a lesser than substitute that in the end cannot save any souls. C.S. Lewis in his book gives a good image of what it looks like to have idolatry slowly creep into our lives. And if we are not careful, after an idol has taken into our, our daily routine, we can become like the Jewish religious leaders, where religion becomes merely part of the cause. And our worship is no longer fixated on Almighty God, but rather on something else. The tricky part of I identifying the sin of idolatry in our lives is that many times idolatry can consist of good things. Idolatry can many times be consisted of good things. A spouse or desire for a spouse is a good thing to have. But a spouse can become an object of our worship when our identity is based on our spouse. We have put our spouse in a place where only God should be at that point. We have made uh, our spouse an idol. Food. Food is a good thing. But food be can become an object of worship when we find comfort in food first. In that moment, we have put food in a place where only God should be. Food can be an idol. Sex. Sex is a good thing. But sex can become an object of worship when we desire sexual satisfaction above all else. When that happens, we have put sex in a place where only God should be. The God is able to satisfy everything in our lives. At that point in time, sex can be an idol. Sports are a good thing. But sports can be become an object of worship when our joy is tied to a sports team, to our particular team that we may uh, compete on. At that point in time, we have put sports in the place where only God should be, the source of our joy. Sports can become an idol. Money is a good thing, but money become, can become an object of our worship when trust and dependence is tied to our money. At that point in time, we have put money in place where God should only be. Money can be an idol. A job. A job is a good thing. But our job can become an object of worship when we put our self-worth based on our job. We have put our job in a place where only God should be. Our job can be an idol. Our children, or the desire for children, is a good thing. But children can become an object of worship when our joy is tied to our children. At that point in time, we have put our children in the place of where only God should be. Children can even be an idol. Activity in the local church is a good thing. But activity in the church can become an object of worship when our security of salvation is tied to activity in church. At this point, we have put activity in church in place where only God should be. 
church activity can be an idol. See, there's good things, good things, that if we are not careful, can become an idol in our lives. And there's so many more examples of of good things potentially being idols in our life. And this list that I just read is just one that I personally have been tempted with and battled with over the years of being a Christ follower. For those who have a relationship with Jesus, I want to ask you, I want to ask yourself, what in my life is a higher priority than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Be honest with yourself. Don't make excuses. Don't try to justify it somehow. Be honest. What in my life and your life is a higher priority than the gospel of Jesus Christ? If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something, please write it down. Tell somebody. Confess it to God. Repent of your sin of idolatry. God is gracious and faithful to forgive you and me of our sin. Repentance is the first step in reorienting a disordered heart. Say that one more time. Repentance is the first step in reorienting a disordered heart. We have to recognize that our worship should only be directed toward the Creator instead of something created. Now, for those who, have, uh, for those who don't have a relationship with Jesus, for those who don't confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you, why are you continuing to, to reject Jesus as the cornerstone of your life? For those who may not know of this illustration of a cornerstone, a cornerstone was used as the first stone to be laid for the foundation of a building. Once the cornerstone was set in place, it became the standard where all other stones would be laid. Everything else was aligned to the cornerstone. For those who don't have a a right relationship with God, who've never submitted to His authority, who've never kneeled before Him and given your life to Him, Jesus, you're trying to base your foundation of your life on a cornerstone that is lesser in comparison to Jesus. It is not as strong, it will not stand forever, and it will fail you because whatever you have in place with Jesus is something that is created, not the Creator. Jesus Christ is the perfect cornerstone for the foundation of your life. I ask you, will you stop trying to build your life on a foundation other than Christ? Will you also repent of your sin today. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of us know when Jesus is going to return. But there is today. There is right now. And you can start having a right relationship with God today. And know that He will accept you. That you will be able to spend eternity with Him instead of eternity separated from Him in hell. In closing, as much as this parable exposes the idolatrous heart of the Jewish religious leaders, we also see characteristics of God. We see God being our provider as He is the one who plants the vineyard. We see God being compassionate, slow to anger, as He keeps sending servant after servant after servant. 
And we see God's amazing love as He's willing to send His Son to die. This is the kind of God who's calling us to put Him first in our lives over anything else. This is the God who wants to be in a relationship with you today. This is the God that should be the cornerstone of our lives. He alone is worthy of our, all of our devotion and our worship. Will you give Him your devotion and your worship today? I pray that you and I would continually do that starting today. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this time where we can pause and we can reflect on you. God, we repent of our sin, our sin of idolatry, sin of pride, sin of lust, sin of selfishness, sin of laziness. God, we, we repent of serving ourselves instead of fully devoted to serving you. And I pray in this moment right now that we would express our dependency upon you and you alone. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being faithful to us even when we don't deserve it. God, we love you and we serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we close this morning's service, I want, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexual, immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Here's the key verse, verse 11. And some of you used to be this way, but you were washed. Amen. You were sanctified. Amen. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's live our identity that we have in Christ this week. doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in every way, but when we do sin, we repent of it. We seek forgiveness and we turn away from our sin. Let's live in the identity that we have in Christ this week. Thank you for your attention and being here this morning. Have a great rest of your week in the Lord. You are dismissed.